Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today, we're going to be taking a look back at the 1980s output of writer and director Barry Levinson, an enviable six-movie run that most directors would wish for over a 20- or 30-year career. Even his least successful movie of this era, critically and financially, has some moments to speak of positively for its inventiveness. Barry Levinson, as it should come as no surprise to anyone, was born in Baltimore, Maryland on April 6, 1942. His dad sold furniture and appliances. His mom was a housewife. Ironically, for someone whose work is so inextricably tied to Charm City, Levinson would literally escape from Baltimore as soon as he graduated high school in 1960, first to American University in nearby Washington, D.C., where he would be a model student, and then to Los Angeles, where he would join the Oxford Company, where he would study acting, improvisation, and stage production. Levinson would also start working in comedy clubs, not as a stand-up, but on the floor, becoming close enough to several of the comics where he learned the art of comedy joke writing. In 1967, he would win a writing contest that would lead to his hiring on a local Los Angeles comedy show, where he would win a local Emmy Award for his work. He would be noticed by one of the producers of the 1970 CBS show, The Tim Conway Comedy Hour, where he would become one of the writers. He would help to write seven of the 14 episodes filmed before its cancellation, and he would appear on camera as various characters on eight of those shows. After that cancellation, Levinson would be an in-demand writer in town, working on a number of other shows, including the Marty Feldman Comedy Machine, the ABC Comedy Hour, the John Biner Comedy Hour, and the Rich Little Show. But he would find his biggest success in television when he joined the writing staff of the biggest comedy show on the air at the time, The Carol Burnett Show. From 1973 to 1976, Levinson would work on 73 episodes, and he would be nominated for three consecutive Emmy Awards for Best Writing of a Comedy, Variety, or Musical Show, winning two of those in 1974 and 1975. During his time on The Carol Burnett Show, Levinson began dating Valerie Curtin, cousin of original Saturday Night Live comedian Jane Curtin, and an actress in her own right who had already appeared in movies like Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and All the President's Men, and as a writer who worked on such shows as The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Phyllis. The pair would marry in December of 1977. Levinson would leave The Carol Burnett Show on good terms because he got an offer he just could not refuse. No less a comedy legend than Mel Brooks had personally asked Levinson and Levinson's co-worker, Rudy DeLuca, to come help him write Silent Movie, Brooks's modern-day homage to the movie industry's early days. The film would become a huge hit, grossing more than $36 million against a $4.4 million budget, and Levinson, who also had a cameo as a studio executive, would find himself nominated for a Writers Guild Award for his work with Brooks, DeLuca, and Ron Clark. Brooks would ask the trio back to help him write his next movie, the Hitchcock comedy parody High Anxiety. The film would feature Levinson in another cameo, a much more memorable scene with Brooks, 
that would parody the famous shower scene in Psycho. Anxiety would be almost as successful as Silent Movie, grossing $31 million against a $4 million budget, but two successful collaborations with Brooks would help set Levinson up as a hot screenwriter who could start generating script sales on his own. His next film as a writer, his first with now-wife Valerie Curtin, would be the pivot that would change the direction of his career once more. And Justice for All. Al Pacino would star as Baltimore attorney Arthur Kirkland, who finds himself needing to defend a judge he has a very poor relationship with when his honor is charged with rape. Kirkland was originally a minor character in another screenplay Levinson had started writing years before. But as Levinson was researching real-life cases that were mirroring the case his on-the-page lawyer would be trying, the more he found himself wanting to write more about that character. With Curtin, Levinson would go to courtrooms near their home in Los Angeles and near his boyhood home in Baltimore to research how judicial trials worked. Once the couple finished their first draft of the script, they would get a copy to Norman Jewison, the Oscar-nominated producer and director of such films as In the Heat of the Night, Fiddler on the Roof, and Jesus Christ Superstar. Jewison hadn't made a movie since 1975's Rollerball and was on the lookout for something different. When he finished reading the script, he contacted Levinson and Curtin, saying he found the courtroom drama to be terrifyingly funny and that he knew exactly what he wanted to do with it. Levinson and Curtin had mentioned they envisioned Al Pacino playing the role of Kirkland as they were writing, and Jewison concurred Pacino would be great in the role. Jewison would set up a workshop reading of the script with Pacino in New York in early 1978, and the actor would nail the character right off the bat, but he could not sign on quite yet, as he was committed at the time to star in a movie written by Oliver Stone called Born on the Fourth of July, which was expected to shoot later in the summer. That project would get indefinitely delayed just before shooting was set to begin, and Pacino immediately signed on to star in And Justice for All. Although the screenplay was set in Baltimore, Jewison's production team would visit courtrooms all across the nation as possible locations until the director stepped into Baltimore's main courthouse, a majestic building built in the 1890s filled with murals of Americana artwork, which he felt would help sell the film's timeless atmosphere. And it didn't hurt that the city of Baltimore had just set up a motion picture and television development department meant to help to lure productions to town. As production was about to begin in November, Jewison would decline an offer to advise the production from the local chapter of the American Bar Association as the director wished to avoid any possible grievances over the script's satirical depiction of judges and lawyers. Although they had planned four weeks of location shooting in Baltimore, the production was able to get everything they needed done in three weeks, 
So those involved in the production would get an extra week of vacation time just before the production would resume in Los Angeles the Monday after Christmas. And production would be completed in late January. And Justice for All would make its world premiere as the closing night presentation at the then Toronto Festival of Festivals Film Festival on September 15, 1979, and then opening in limited release on October 19th. The reviews were mixed, with many critics baffled by the constant tonal shifts between comedy and drama, but audiences were hungry for a new Al Pacino movie. After only eight weeks in theaters, and Justice for All had already grossed more than $23 million, and would finish its theatrical run with more than $33.3 million in ticket sales. Al Pacino would get his fifth Best Actor Oscar nomination in seven years, and Levinson and Curtin would receive their first Oscar nominations for Best Original Screenplay. While Injustice for All was in production, Levinson and Curtin would be hired by Paramount Pictures to adapt Todd Walton's drama Inside Moves. But by the time director Richard Donner started shooting the film in Oakland in February of 1980, Paramount had dropped the picture, forcing the producers to finance the film independently. Associated Film Distribution, the company who had the Muppet movie to great acclaim in box office in 1979, would pick the film up for distribution after seeing a pair of 20-minute featurettes Donner screened at the 1980 Cannes Film Market. I won't go into too much detail on the film since we already spoke about it previously in our AFD episode last year. Suffice to say, the film deserved a much better reception than it would get upon its release in December of 1980. However, Diana Scarwood would receive the film's sole Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. When Levinson and Curtin finished their adaptation of Inside Moves, Levinson started tinkering with an idea that had been floating in the back of his head for a very long time, a movie about a group of early 20-something friends in Baltimore in the late 1950s. He wouldn't actually start on the screenplay until his friend and mentor Mel Brooks encouraged him to write down the stories he had entertained Brooks with over the years about his time growing up in Baltimore. Levinson would finish the screenplay in a matter of weeks, and Brooks would use his influence as a growing producer in Hollywood to get the script to Mark Johnson, who had worked as Brooks' assistant director on High Anxiety and was then an executive at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Johnson loved the script and agreed to be the film's executive producer. Johnson would take the screenplay to his superior, Jerry Weintraub, himself the subject of our very first test episode back in July 2019, and Weintraub, would not only greenlight the film, but would produce it himself. Levinson would be allowed to direct his first feature film. Casting would begin immediately, with Levinson and casting director Ellen Chenoweth seeing more than 600 actors in Los Angeles, New York City, and Baltimore for the five leading male roles. Most of the actors who would get cast were relatively new to movies. Kevin Bacon had already been featured in the original Friday the 13th movie, but was making his living at the time acting on the soap opera Guiding Light. The day of his audition, for the role of Boogie or Billy, he had woken up with a flu and a fever of 104 degrees. But he went to his audition anyway, and Levinson was impressed with his weird, not-all-there interpretation of his reading, 
that led to his casting as the weird, not-all-there Fenwick. Daniel Stern, who had made his movie debut three years earlier as one of the cutters in Breaking Away, got the role of Shrevey in large part because he was a native of Maryland, and he was one of the very few actors seen for the role who, like the character, was already married. Steve Gutenberg had been featured in several films, including the disastrous village people movie Can't Stop the Music, but his casting as Eddie would be his first leading role. For Tim Daly and Paul Reiser, both men would be making their film debuts. In fact, Reiser didn't originally plan on auditioning for the film. He had accompanied a friend to the audition and was persuaded to give it a go after a secretary in the waiting room couldn't help but overhear him keeping the other people auditioning in stitches while they waited. The most experienced actor of the group hired would be Mickey Rourke, who had already been featured in 1941, Heaven's Gate, and Body Double, playing the wild ladies' man and part-time beautician Boogie. The film would also be the feature film debut of the main female character in the film, Ellen Barkin, who plays Shrevey's wife, Beth. Michael Tucker, another actor who was a native of Baltimore, would be cast in a small but important role of Bagel, one of the patrons of the titular diner. There's a little place where people gather to enjoy the banquet of life. I get a date with Carol Heathrow. She is death. It's the diner. And what they really want most isn't on the menu. Come on. Eddie's given Elise a football quiz. If she fails, the marriage is off. Now she passes, it's two more days to the thing. Marriage. You're a virgin, aren't you? Technically. Come on. You miserable creature. It's a slice of life. Did you turn it to such a thing? With a touch of spice. Better put that sheep down. And a little love. Who's admiring your horse? Where you? A few beers. A few tears. A few great years. You happy with your marriage or what? Beth is terrific and everything. Always got the diner. Yeah, we always got the diner. They were sharing good times that soon became old times. Uh, my prayer. Flipside, heaven on earth, recorded by the Platters for Mercury Records, color of the label Maroon. Nothing could be finer than eating at the diner. These are like a building with feet. Where friends show up, but mostly show off. I'll hit you so hard, I'll kill your whole family. You guys really are sick, you know that? because you got no sense of humor. It's a place to stop before moving on. Diner. It's open all day and cooking all night. Production on the film began in Baltimore on March 2nd, 1981 less than four months after Mark Johnson first read the screenplay. A number of the scenes would be filmed inside a fully functional 18-by-48-foot diner that had been brought in to the Fells Point neighborhood of Baltimore from New Jersey. 
And although this would be Levinson's first film as a feature director, and a period piece taking place more than 20 years earlier, he would complete the nine-week shoot on time and half a million dollars under its $5.5 million budget. Diner would make its world premiere, appropriately, at the famed Senator Theater in downtown Baltimore on March 2, 1982. The screening would be a benefit for the Mayor's Fund to save lives from smoke and fire. And Ellen Barkin, Timothy Daly, Steve Gutenberg, and Daniel Stern would sign their names in a block of wet cement in front of the theater. The film would open in limited release in cities like Phoenix, St. Louis, and Washington, D.C. a few days later, but not in Los Angeles or New York City or, strangely, Baltimore. And not for lack of trying, but the film just did not connect with audiences in those first runs. And MGM was ready to pull the plug on the film, including reversing a booking for New York City on April 2nd. The New York City publicist for the film urged MGM to keep the booking to allow the film to find its audience, but MGM was undeterred. They would, however, relent when they learned that Janet Maslin of the New York Times and several other major critics in the city were going to let their reviews of Diner run on April 2nd anyway, even if the film didn't open that day in town. MGM rushed to rebook the film and were able to secure one theater, the Festival at 57th and 5th near Central Park, an opulent 600-seat theater with specific orchestra and balcony seating, for a two-week booking. The movie opened, the reviews ran, and the people came. Diner would set house records, but had to be moved to the Cornet Theater on 59th and 3rd to make room for that year's New Director New Films Festival in conjunction with the New York Film Festival. And no matter how well the film would perform at the festival or the Coronet or the Coronet Sister Theater, the Baronet, located in the same building as the Coronet but operated as its own entity, where it would play in late June before moving back to the festival on July 2nd. It would still only play in that one theater in all of the New York City metro area which includes not only the other four boroughs, but Long Island, parts of Upper New Jersey, parts of southeastern New York from Yonkers and above, and parts of southwestern Connecticut, until it finally added a few additional theaters on July 16th. The film would finally open in Los Angeles, as well as in Berkeley, Miami, and San Francisco on May 7th, and it would continue to do well. Three weeks later, it would expand to Atlanta, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Portland, Oregon, San Diego, Sacramento, and Salt Lake City, and then on to Chicago and Cincinnati on June 4th. And despite the film never playing in more than 100 theaters in any given week of its 43-week run in theaters, Diner would finish its theatrical run with $14.1 million in ticket sales. It would launch the careers of all of its leading actors, and Levinson would receive his second Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. Once Levinson had finished his work on Diner, he set his sights on his next project. You really are a riddle, aren't you? What are you trying to hide anyways? No one knew who he was. What do you know about this guy, Max? Not very much. Where he came from. We're not kids anymore. Nothing's ever the same. 
or what he was after. I don't have any secrets. Maybe, but I do. But they knew he was the best that ever was. Best there is now, best there ever will be. Robert Redford, The Natural. Bernard Malamud published his novel The Natural in 1952. Bean Con Films, makers of television commercials, had optioned the screen rights to the film in 1976, intending it as their first feature film. They'd hire Phil Dusenberry, writer of the 1972 satire film Hale, to adapt the book. Dusenberry would work on a few drafts before Bean Con brought in Roger Town, the brother of screenwriting legend Robert Town, to give Dusenberry's work a go. This would be Town's first movie project. Both Dusenberry and Town would make notable changes from Malamud's novel, making the story more positive than the author's original tone. But it would be Town who made the biggest change to the story, making Roy Hobbs not a slave to his own vices, but an unwilling victim of circumstance. After Town completed his work on the script, the project started picking up some steam. Actors who had read the script and were interested in playing Hobbs were as varied as Michael Douglas, Nick Nolte, Rob Reiner, and John Voight. But it wouldn't be until 1982 when the film finally looked like it could happen. Levinson had completed Diner and was looking for a new project. He had read The Natural and wanted to make it into a movie but Bean Khan didn't think he was the right fit. A few months later, Levinson would have a meeting with Robert Redford about some potential work when Redford mentioned that he had been interested in making a movie version of The Natural for more than a decade, and he would send Levinson a copy of Town's most recent revision a few days later. Levinson was on board, Redford was on board, and as luck would have it in early 1983, Bean Khan would let their option for the novel lapse. Redford's former personal attorney, Gary Hendler, had just become the president of the newly formed TriStar Pictures, a co-venture between the CBS television network, Columbia Pictures, and the cable movie company, Home Box Office, to produce movies that would be equally financed by the three entities, released into theaters by Columbia, then play on HBO, before making its way to CBS. Hendler, who needed to make a splash announcing the first movies for the company, worked hard to make sure The Natural was one of those first titles. Not only would The Natural be the first movie produced by TriStar, it would be the first movie to star Redford since 1980's Brubaker. While scouting locations that could stand in for the story's late 30s setting, the production would look at more than 70 baseball stadiums across the country before they would come across War Memorial Stadium, a Works Progress administration project built in 1937 in downtown Buffalo, New York, which still had the right 1930s baseball stadium look and feel, although the production would need to spend more than half a million dollars to really make the stadium ready for the movie. The movie would start shooting in late July 1983 and last for two months. The Natural is one of my favorite movies of all time. There is not a single wrong decision in its execution. Every performance is flawless. Every shot from Caleb Deschanel and his team is evocative. And Randy Newman's score is iconic.
For me, it doesn't matter that at 48, Redford was at least at the time far older than Roy Hobbs was as a 35-year-old rookie, let alone as the 19-year-old Roy who strikes out Joe Don Baker's Babe Ruth stand-in while traveling to Chicago for a tryout with the Cubs. And I don't think there would have been any improvement in the film had a younger Redford lookalike play the role for those teenage Hobbs scenes, or if computer technology would have been good enough at the time to de-age Redford down nearly 30 years. The $28 million film would get fantastic reviews and four Academy Award nominations, including a third consecutive Best Supporting Actress nomination for Glenn Close, Caleb Deschanel's second consecutive nomination for Best Cinematography, Randy Newman's second nomination for Original Score in Three Years, and for Art Direction. It should have been nominated for Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay, Costume Design, and Editing. And as good as Redford is as Roy, I can't fault the Academy's choices for actor that year. About the only person I might take off the list of nominees to put Redford in there is Jeff Bridges for Starman. But again, that's a strong maybe, as I'm not really sure I'd actually do it. But for most of those categories, I would have taken out Places in the Heart in 1985, and I would have taken it out again today. If Levinson was bothered by not getting nominated for The Natural, that didn't stop him from diving wholeheartedly into his next project. There's a clever murder on the list, and I'm going to find him. A case this challenging, this exciting. I need you, Watson. We're in this together. We're a team. Could never be solved alone. Steven Spielberg presents... Sonia Hallucination. Young Sherlock Holmes, directed by Barry Levinson, rated PG-13. Young Sherlock Holmes was written for Steven Spielberg by Chris Columbus, who had written 1984's Gremlins and 1985's The Goonies for Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment. When Spielberg decided instead to make the color purple, Spielberg personally selected Levinson to take over in the director's chair. Now, I'm not sure what Spielberg saw in Levinson from a small Baltimore ensemble drama and a baseball drama that made him think this guy would be the one who would best serve a Victorian-era mystery adventure film, which would serve as the initial meeting of two of fiction's most famous characters. But it would be the first time Levinson would be making a movie outside of the northeastern United States region, the first time he'd be working primarily with teenagers, and the first time he'd be involved in a film with complex special effects. Yet, despite all of this, the $18 million budget for young Sherlock Holmes would be $10 million less than Levinson had to shoot The Natural. In the film, which is not based on any Arthur Conan Doyle story, Holmes and Watson are teenagers attending school in London who become friends as they attempt to solve the deaths of two staff members at the Academy whom Scotland Yard policeman Lestrade has deemed to be suicides. Columbus would state he intended the story to be respectful of Doyle's characters and their many fans, while also examining how Holmes became the person he would become in adulthood. Of his films of the decade, young Sherlock Holmes is Levinson's least successful movie as a work of storytelling. The young actors are good, the production design and costumes are gorgeous. Stephen Goldblatt's cinematography is sharp. 
Bruce Broughton's score is equal to his Oscar-nominated score for Lawrence Kasdan's Western Silverado from a few months earlier, and the groundbreaking special effects from ILM were appropriately nominated for Best Visual Effects. Yet the film suffers from a weak screenplay that was maybe too wink-winky with its tributes to Doyle's story and Holmes's folklore. Opening in 920 theaters on Wednesday, December 4th, the film would only open to $2.5 million after five days, which was good enough for fifth place for that week, but would pale in comparison to Rocky IV's $11.2 million haul in its second week. To Paramount's credit, they did continue to support the film, adding another 578 screens in its third week, just before Christmas. But the film would have already fallen to 11th place that weekend with just $1.44 million, and would continue to falter after that, ending with a final gross of $19.7 million after five months. Undeterred by Sherlock's relative disappointing returns, Levinson would jump right back into writing, coming up with what would become the second film in his Baltimore Movies series. I bolted! I bolted! I bolted at six miles an hour! I bolted into the street! Richard Dreyfuss. I'm gonna get even with you. Danny DeVito. You picked the wrong person to get even with, pal! Barbara Hershey. Baltimore, 1963. I think this place may be a little too large for us. You're talking about this matchbox? It's got a lot of overhead to it. I mean, what do you do? Spend your time in the bedroom and the kitchen, that's all. Why are you living in the dining room? I'm going to find the one thing that cuts him right to the quick. I wonder if he's married. I want to know what it's like to be with someone else. Because if what I got with Tilly's as good as it gets, I just... My wife just died. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. No, I'm over it now. It's been a very trying time, though, you know. Imagine. Just learning how to eat again. I just decided I'm going out with him. That's it. Make your move. I want to... You know... I want to be with you, okay? Okay, I said it. I said it, and I'm glad. We have a representative in your neighborhood today. I mean, can you figure it out? A guy bangs into my car, thinks I did him in, tries to get even with me by stealing my wife. You two fall in love. This was that guy? Got that guy again? It's his wife. You shot pool for me? I had no choice. What happened? And you win. I win. You lost? I lost. I'm a free man! Touchstone Pictures presents Richard Dreyfus. They live with you. It's like pressing the point. They bring all these things with them, you know. They, you go into the bathroom, you see things you never saw before. Danny DeVito. Listen, uh, I'm praying here. Would you go around? I want to get some of the salad. It's out of water. Go around. Barbara Hershey. Everything I've ever done in my whole life has been safe and practical. And what's it gotten me? What's it gotten me? Tin Men. Well, here's to who knows what. Amen. Although it would not be a sequel to Diner, Tin Men would happen in the same general area three years later and would feature two of the same characters from Diner, Michael Tucker's Bagel and Florence Moody's diner waitress, who is still serving customers at the Fells Point Diner. In the film, 
Richard Dreyfus in his best role since Close Encounters, and Danny DeVito play competing door-to-door aluminum siding salesmen who have an escalating feud over their work and their personal lives. Levinson would assemble his best cast to date for the film, including Barbara Hershey as DeVito's long-suffering wife Nora, Seymour Cassell, Bruno Kirby, John Mahoney, Richard Portnow, and J.T. Walsh, and would also feature the British new wave soul band Fine Young Cannibals, performing several of their songs as the house band at a local Baltimore nightclub. Production on the $11 million film would begin in mid-July 1986, completely shooting in and around Baltimore for eight weeks. But Dreyfus and DeVito would need to stay on an additional three days at the end of the shoot when some uncut negative dailies were stolen from a truck taking the film to a processing lab in New York City. Disney's Touchstone division would open the film in nine theaters on March 6, 1987, and the film would gross more than $187,000 in its first three days. The following weekend, Disney expanded the R-rated comedy to 684 screens, where it would earn more than $4 million, good enough for fourth place on the box office charts, and second overall in terms of per-screen average, thanks to Fox's single-screen opening of the new Coen Brothers film, Raising Arizona. Tin Men would continue to place in the top ten for a total of seven weeks, and would complete its run after ten months, with a cool $25.4 million in the till. Sadly, Tin Men isn't as well known as it deserves to be. Despite its success at the box office upon its initial release, it's not held in the same regard as several of Levinson's other films. It's easy to find on Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, and YouTube, and the $3.99 rental fee is definitely worth it. But once again, Levinson would have little time to enjoy the fruits of his success, because in March 1987, he was already deep into pre-production on his next film. From Touchstone Pictures, in 1965, DJ Adrian Cronauer was sent to Vietnam. He immediately broke all the rules. Yeah. He's disobeyed orders. As- I'll get you, my pretty. He's read unofficial news. Big dogs lending on my face. What's he going to be like when he's ten times as popular? But even though he made waves, he made a difference to everyone around him. Robin Williams, Good Morning Vietnam. Too much? Rated R. The story of Adrian Cronauer's time as a disc jockey in Vietnam during the early days of the war had been around for nearly a decade. In 1979, Cronauer himself was inspired to write a treatment for a sitcom about his experiences and teamed with a fellow Vietnam vet, Ben Moses, to write it up. The sitcom idea was rejected because at the time, just a few years after the end of the conflict, nobody was ready to laugh about the war, despite MASH being a hit film and television show during most of the conflict. Several years later, the pair would rework the sitcom treatment as a movie of the week-like production for television, except by the early 80s, the television movie of the week was starting to disappear thanks to the growth of cable channels like HBO and Showtime. But Larry Bresner, the talent agent for Robin Williams, would read the script and see the potential of the story for his client. With Williams's pr- approval, Bresner would purchase the rights to Cronauer's life story and hire Mitch Markowitz, whose credits included scripts for M.A.S.H., Benson, 
too close for comfort in the facts of life, to rewrite the script as a Robin Williams movie with consultations from Cronauer and Moses. Williams's casting was made official in late January 1987, and Levinson would sign on shortly thereafter. Shooting was originally expected to begin in the summer, and Williams would sign on to co-host that year's Oscar telecast, scheduled for March 30th. But when Disney moved the production date up two months to April 6th, Williams was out of the telecast, as he needed to be on his way to shoot halfway around the world in Thailand. Joining Williams in the cast of the $14 million film would be three of the co-stars from Tin Men, Bruno Kirby, Richard Portnow, and J.T. Walsh, as well as Forrest Whitaker, Richard Edson, and Noble Willingham. While the film was shooting in and around Bangkok, two other Hollywood movies would be filming at the same time, the Willem Dafoe-Gregory Hines Vietnam War drama Off Limits, and the Judge Reinhold Fred Savage comedy Vice Versa. During an off day for two of the productions, a softball game between the cast and crews of Good Morning Vietnam and Off Limits was arranged to help raise money for medical supplies for Vietnamese refugees living in camps in northern Thailand. Although there are no reports of how much money was raised, the Good Morning Vietnam team would beat the Off Limits team 35-10, to 10, and Barry Levinson would be named the most valuable player for the game. The movie would open at the Cinema 2 and the 84th Street Sixplex in New York City on December 23, 1987, before adding an exclusive engagement at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood and in a theater in Toronto on Christmas Day, and the film would gross nearly $200,000 in its first five days from those four theaters. It would remain at those four theaters for another three weeks, grossing more than a million dollars in that time frame. When it was time for the film to expand on January 15, 1988, the country was ready. Adding another 781 screens, the film would become the number one film in America with more than $11.75 million in ticket sales. Another 409 screens would be added for week five and 366 more in week seven. And the film would continue to be the biggest film in the nation for another 10 weeks. Finally falling to second in week 13 to, of all things, Police Academy 5, Assignment to Miami Beach. In week 14, the film would hit the $100 million mark in ticket sales and would continue to play in first-run theaters across the country for six months and then in dollar houses for another six months. When the film finally finished in theaters in January 1989, it would have collected $123.9 million in ticket sales and the Academy wouldn't hold his skipping on hosting their big event against him, giving Robin Williams his first Oscar nomination for his work on the film. And did you know there was almost a sequel to the film? In 1992, Twin Peaks co-creator Mark Frost was hired to write Good Morning Chicago, which would have featured Williams as Cronauer as a journalist at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, but the project would not happen when Williams, Levinson, and Disney couldn't agree on the direction of the film. At least this time, Levinson had some time to enjoy his success. 
He and his producing partner, Mark Johnson, who had produced every Levinson movie since he greenlit Diner while working for MGM back in 1981, didn't have another project on their plate. But in early February, they'd get a call from MGM's sister studio, United Artists. They needed a team like Johnson and Levinson for one of their movies, and they needed them right now, because the clock was ticking on their big project of the year. And if they said no, the film might be lost forever. Of course, I'm an excellent driver. That's me drive slow on the driveway. Chris, only 28 miles on the odometer since I drove it a week ago last Saturday. It should be more than 28 miles. What is this? Who is this guy? Raymond is your brother. My brother? I... I don't have a brother. Rain Man was one of the hottest screenplays in Hollywood in the mid-1980s, with a slew of the biggest directors in town wanting to work with two of the hottest stars in Hollywood. A comedic drama about two brothers who are getting to know each other on a road trip after their father dies. Ron Morrow, who had won an Emmy for writing the 1983 Mickey Rooney TV movie Bill, had originally come up with the story in 1984 after meeting a savant named Kim at an Association of Retarded Citizens meeting in Arlington, Texas. Although Kim was not on the spectrum, that's how Morrow would write the character on the page. United Artists President Roger Birnbaum signed his company onto the movie solely based on Morrow's pitch, although Morrow would find himself soon replaced on his own project by up-and-crumbing screenwriter Ronald Bass, who had written Francis Coppola's Gardens of Stone and Bob Raffleson's Black Widow. An agent at the influential talent agency, CAA, would send a copy of the script to both Dustin Hoffman and Bill Murray with the hopes that Murray would play the younger autistic brother, Ray, whose existence was unknown by Hoffman's older brother, Charlie, until their father's death would bring them together. Murray would decline the role, and Hoffman would start angling to have the roles reversed, with Ray being the older autistic brother. Martin Brest, hot off the success of Beverly Hills Cop, would sign on to direct, and with Hoffman, they would help convince Tom Cruise to play the role of the hotshot younger brother who doesn't remember his older brother or why they had been separated for so many years. As you can expect, trying to get the schedules of two top stars like Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise to line up for a three-month production could be difficult. But there was a time in late 1986 where it looked like the movie could get made. But Brest's constant rewriting demands of the screenplay, sending the story in directions the actors and studio did not approve of, would soon cause the director to leave the production in May of 1987. Hoffman would call Steven Spielberg, whom the actor had wanted to work with for years, to see if he might be able to come aboard the film. Spielberg was in post-production on Empire of the Sun and had been looking forward to vacation time once the film was locked, but decided the chance to direct Hoffman and Cruz together was just too good to pass up. The three men would spend time together addressing the script problems created by Brest, but then Spielberg would unexpectedly leave the project in November of 1987. United Artists would call in Oscar-winning filmmaker Sidney Pollack to take over, but he too would leave the project in early 1988, even though there was now an opening in both men's schedule for May due to a delay on the start of the production 
on Cruz's next expected project, Born on the Fourth of July. Levinson and Johnson would sign on in late February 1988, a mere nine weeks before the movie was scheduled to start shooting. Like the movie, the production of Rain Man would be a cross-country journey, starting in Cincinnati for four weeks, then moving to various locations on the roads of Kentucky and Indiana for several days, before settling in Oklahoma City for two weeks of shooting around the area. Then they'd hit the road again, working their way to Las Vegas for three weeks of location shooting, and from there working their way to Los Angeles for the final days of shooting. As the movie was a rather simple story about two brothers on a road trip, post-production on the $25 million movie would be quick and easy, and the film would be ready for a late December opening. On December 16th, Rain Man would open in 1,248 theaters, but it would not be the number one film that week. Its $7 million gross would be 10% less than another big star pairing, the Arnold Schwarzenegger-Danny DeVito comedy Twins, which would be in its second week of release. Week two would find itself in the same situation, with Rain Man about 10% behind Twins. But in week three, the tables would be churned, and Rain Man would become the number one film in America, with Twins taking second place. Except Rain Man would gross more than $14.35 million that long New Year's weekend, while Twins would be far behind with only $9.46 million in ticket sales. Rain Man would continue to dominate at the box office for months. It would hit the magic $100 million gross number in its ninth week of release, and it would not fall below sixth place until its 20th week of release, even managing to make its way back to the top spot in its 16th week just after it would win four Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Actor for Dustin Hoffman. The film would play through the end of 1989 and would complete its triumphant year with $172.8 million in ticket sales. With the success of Rain Man, Levinson would start the 90s with the third film in his Baltimore film series, Avalon which was based on a lot of the stories Levinson used to hear while growing up with his grandparents and aunts and uncles, Eastern European Jews from Poland who had started coming to America in 1914. While the film would get great reviews from critics and be nominated for four Academy Awards, including Levinson's third nomination for writing, the film would be a disappointment at the box office, grossing $15.7 million against a $20 million budget. He would follow Avalon with his most ambitious film to date, a $30 million period drama about the life of mobster Bugsy Siegel. It would be the first film starring Warren Beatty since 1987 Ishtar. It would be the movie where he would meet his future wife, Annette Benning. It would receive fantastic reviews and would be nominated for 11 Oscars, the most for any film that year, including Best Picture and Best Director but the film would be another disappointment, grossing only $49.1 million. In 1992, Levinson would re-team with Robin Williams on the fantasy comedy Toys, a passion project for Levinson that he had originally written with his then-wife Valerie Curtin, 
who he had divorced a decade earlier. Whatever Levinson was trying to say with the film, he didn't do a very good job with it. The $50 million film would not even gross half its budget back, let alone the advertising costs poured into promoting it. More disappointing movies would come in 1994, in the Joe Pesci, Christian Slater comedy Jimmy Hollywood, and the Michael Douglas, Demi Moore erotic thriller Disclosure. Both were not very good, but Disclosure would be a moderate box office success. For some reason, people really wanted to see Michael Douglas get it on with a series of women between 1987 and 1994. Levinson would have another hit film in 1996's legal crime drama Sleepers, with a cast that included Kevin Bacon, Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Jason Patrick, and Brad Pitt. And he would follow that up with a surprise success, 1997's political comedy, Wag the Dog. But after that, it's mostly downhill from there for Barry Levinson, at least in theaters. He would find some success making five docudramas for HBO in the 2010s, but he'd find his biggest success during the 90s and 2000s as the producer of two of the best drama series ever made, Oz, and my personal favorite television series of all time, Homicide, Life on the Streets. Over the past 40 years, movies written by and or directed by Barry Levinson have been nominated for 38 Academy Awards, winning six of those. And of those 38 nominations, five belong to Levinson himself as a writer, a producer, and or a director, with one win for directing Rain Man. It is my hope that with this episode, maybe you've learned a thing or two you didn't know about one of your favorite films, or learned enough about a movie you didn't really know about before, and will give it a chance in the future. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.